All right, Acts chapter 7 is where we're going to find ourselves today, and uh, where we hope to, uh, Lord willing, finish the entire seventh chapter of Acts. So in case you didn't read ahead, we've only got 60 verses to cover here in the next 45 minutes, so it should be easy, no problem whatsoever. But as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you where we were Last week, as we went through chapter 6, what we saw is Stephen was among these seven that were called to take care of a specific problem. The problem that existed in the church were there were these widows, these Hellenist widows is what they were called, and it didn't make them lesser Christians at all. It just meant as a Hellenist, they spoke Greek in their household instead of Hebrew. And so this was the, the this group of widows that were not being taken care of. At least that was the perception. And so Stephen, along with six of his other buddies, were called together to be leaders in this area and to essentially be leaders. <laughs> they were called to, to be of service and to be waiters for these widows there in the early church. And so what we find is he, he Stephen, goes from a table waiter to now a preacher of God's word. He was actually given the same gifts as the apostles. We're told he's got a tremendous gifts and powers. In fact, verse 8 of chapter 6 said, Stephen was full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. And what I love about that is Stephen was called into this area, this seemingly uh, minor task, and maybe even a demeaning task in some ways, certainly beneath any you know powerful preacher, you would think. And yet, because of his faithfulness, God actually gave him more faith. He actually gave him more responsibilities because he was faithful in this task to give him more things to do, and in fact, allowing him to be this teacher. And so, as he begins to teach and preach, uh, the issue that arises is he now comes to the attention of the Sanhedrin. And this Sanhedrin is this group of 70 men that rule over the Jewish religion. And in fact, there were 71 of them. The one additional was the high priest. And so these 71 men begin to take notice of what Stephen is up to. And the issue for these guys is as they come up against Stephen and tell him to not preach in the name of Jesus, they can't refute anything that he says. His wisdom is far great for them. And what you find is uh, the issue that's truly at hand is they were coming at this from their religious standpoint with the rules and the regulations and the law, and Stephen approached it as a relationship. He could speak more intimately, more in detail, with more confidence because he knew God. He knew God in a very intimate and close and personal way, and these men just knew about God. And so today, we're going to look a lot of this comparison between relationship and religion. And so for Stephen, their issue that they bring up is they accuse him of blasphemy or speaking against. And these three groups are who they claim he blasphemed against. And it's really the very foundation of their Hebrew faith. It was the temple that he spoke against Moses and that he spoke against the law. These were the three chief concerns that they had when it came to Stephen. And so they bring these charges up against him. They're very foundational charges and yet Stephen's going to show them where the true foundation resides, in the person, in the body, and in the work of Jesus Christ. And that it's important for us to note that Jesus was not about undermining any of these things, but instead about pointing to where they truly resided, where they actually began. And so Stephen's going to give them a little bit of a history lesson in their own Jewish faith and background as we go through chapter 7. Now, pick up with me there in as we read, and then the high priest said, are you, are these 
excuse me, said, are these things so? He's speaking of Stephen uh, blaspheming against the temple, against Moses, and against the law. So the, the high priest asks him these questions, this question, are these things so? And Stephen replies to address them in verse 2 and says, uh, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. So what Stephen begins with is, you guys are all excited about your temple, and in particular your location, where you actually reside at. You're in Jerusalem, the, the epicenter of all things religious, but uh, look here, what he starts with is uh, your father Abraham, in fact, our father. Stephen was a Jew. He says, our father Abraham was met by God. He, he sees the God of glory, not in Jerusalem, but in Mesopotamia, actually in this area that we know as Babylon. So this is where uh, Abraham actually gets a word from the Lord. And then verse 3, and he said to them, get out of your country and away from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. And so as God approaches their father Abraham, he tells Abraham to get out of his country, and away from his relatives, and come to a land. Have faith that God is going to land that he's going to show him. And so God is all about advancing Abraham spiritually. By the way, he is all about advancing you and I spiritually. And so when he begins to make us uncomfortable and tells us to get out of our lane we like to drive in, what he is all about is advancing us on a spiritual journey. Now, verse 4, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Now, important little side note is what did God tell Abraham to do? Get away from your family and leave. What did Abraham do? He did leave, but he stopped during his journey. And note with me, it wasn't until his father died that he continued his journey. He was told to get away, and yet he took his father with him. And so what we find in Abraham in this instance is uh, partial obedience. By the way, uh, partial obedience is equal to disobedience. Partial obedience is no obedience at all. And so what we find is as we are only partially obedient to God, our spiritual journey will be stymied. It will stop. And in this Christian life, there's only two directions to go. You're either advancing spiritually with God or you are backsliding. And so here's this uh, period of time. We don't know exactly how long, but Abraham called, and yet he ceases growing spiritually because of his only partial obedience or his lack of faith in this area, which is fascinating because Abraham is known as the father of the faith, and yet he lacked faith to continue on this journey that God put him on. Now in verse 5, and God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on, but even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Now, what's he saying here is Abraham received this promise of God to get as an inheritance the entire land of Canaan for him and his descendants. And yet, do you realize Abraham never got to actually possess any of it himself other than one small cave that he bought in Genesis 23 so he could bury his wife. And so here's a promise of God, and yet Abraham doesn't get to personally realize it. He has to, by faith, know that it's for his descendants which, by the way, what he's also saying is here is, you know what Abraham didn't have on top of not getting the inheritance? Descendants. 
He didn't have any children. So here's two promises from God, and yet uh, they are delayed. They don't happen right away. Not that that ever happens to any of us, right? That God gives us these promises, and yet we don't get to see them happen immediately on our time frame like we would like them to. Now, verse 6, But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out of that place and serve me in this place. And so God says, here's the deal. I'm going to actually take this people that I've promised this land to, and I'm going to put them in Egypt. And Egypt in our Old Testament is always a picture of the world. I'm going to place them in this spot, and I'm going to let them be in bondage for 400 years. But my promise is still going to be true. And so there's this very unlikely circumstance that God is actually going to raise up an entire nation through the Hebrew people while they're in Egypt. Now, at the beginning of verse 8, And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so... Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And so the promise God gives Abraham that these things are going to be fulfilled and these things are going to be true. To make a covenant with him, he gives him the gift of uh, circumcision. I don't know about any of you, but when God comes to me and he says, hey, I want you to, uh, I'm going to give you this gift, and then, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you the gift of circumcision as a covenant. You've got to imagine these eyes looked a little bit like the picture on the screen, like, what? You want me to, what? I mean, this doesn't sound like a great promise at all. In fact, I'm going to go back to Haran if this is the way these things are going to go. And yet, I want to tell you that when Abraham received this covenant of circumcision, he was 99 years old. When God called him out of the Chaldeans, away from them, he was 75. 24 years God was building faith in the life of Abraham to get him to this point. I want to share that with you because sometimes God calls us into things and it seems crazy, and I don't know how anybody would ever do that. This is, that was way more faith than I could ever possibly possess. But do you realize he's never going to call you into something that he hasn't already given you the faith to do? You see, he was building in Abraham, this man of faith, this father of the faith, didn't start off like this. God was raising him up. And what he was telling him, as he's calling him into this, he's calling him when he's not even in the land. He didn't even possess the land. In fact, he's going to send his people uh, to Egypt because the reality is it was never about a building or a location. God could call Abraham just like he could call you and I any place he chooses. Now, for us, that's difficult because we get very attached to places and locations. And I want to, right now, we, we get to reside in this beautiful church building don't we but do you realize that a year ago this was not a church building at all this was a place for zumba classes (laughs) i mean and so there's been this whole litany of churches in this place but when we purchased this building my camper was out there that i was living in at the time at 5 30 in the morning every day of the week it was it didn't sound like a church at all it sounded like ladies in here working out and so my point is we get so attached to a building and God says I'm all about a relationship 
I'm not about a building or a place, and it's wonderful that he's provided this, but, but the church of Woodlawn Chapel, if this whole place goes away, do you understand? It's you. You're the church. You're the called out assembly. You're the ecclesia. The body of Christ is not this place. It's, it's great that it's warm in the winter and cool in the summer, but you are truly the church. And so Stephen is trying to drive that point home with them, that it's not about the location. Abraham never even possessed anything in Israel except for a place to bury his wife. Now, continuing at the end here of verse 8. And uh, Isaac and circumcised on the eighth day, and then Isaac begat, or gave uh, birth to, was a father of Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs, speaking of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel. In verse 9, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And so we see now as he goes from uh, Abraham now to one of the patriarchs, speaking specifically of Joseph. Now, many of you are going to remember the story of Joseph, so I'll just go over it quickly. It's important to note that he was the favored son of Jacob. Jacob, his dad, known uh, first as heel catcher. That's literally what Jacob's name means in Hebrew. And he was a tricky trickster of a guy until God got a hold of him and changed his name to Yisrael, or governed by God. He took a man known as a heel catcher and converted him into governed by God, but he still had himself a favorite son, this son born to his favorite wife, Rachel. And so the family dynamic, by the way, if you decide to start picking multiple wives and building a harem for yourself, uh, you will have the kind of mess that Jacob had. So if you read the Bible and you go, why would God allow this? Is this his perfect plan? The answer is no. Just look at this family. It looks the Jerry Springer show would have on. It's, it's a wild scene. And so we see this happening in the life of Jacob. But he has this son, Joseph. And Joseph gets this dream, this vision given to him by God. And he shares it with all of his brothers. And it goes a little something like this. Uh, I had this dream that I was going to uh, rule. And I was actually going to rule over all of you and you were going to bow down to me. Isn't that an awesome dream? Are you guys not excited about this? No, they weren't. They were not excited. All of his older brothers, in fact, were very jealous and envious. And so what they did is they sold Joseph into slavery. They threw him into a pit and then sold him to Midian slave traders who carried him off to Egypt. And they told his father that Joseph had died. And so this is how things went for Joseph, not a great story, and yet when we start to look at this, what you're going to find is amazing parallels between Joseph in the book of Genesis and Jesus Christ. You think about this, Joseph was sold as a slave, sold out by his own family for the price of a slave. And what happens to Jesus at the hand of Judas, his own family, his own brethren, but he's sold for 30 pieces of silver, the common price of a slave. Sold as a slave wrongly accused then. Christ is wrongly accused by people of all types of things he did not do so they could sentence him to death. And as Joseph goes into Egypt, he is false of trying to rape a woman, his boss's wife, in fact. And so they throw him now into prison is what we find. And yet, in the life of Joseph, he always found favor because of his relationship with God. Always finding favor every single place he was carried off to. 
And so we'll see more parallels as we go through this. Uh, Verse 11, now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. And so what we find is as they have now rejected Joseph, similarly to as Jesus is rejected by his people, a famine came upon the land. It's precisely what happened with Christ. A great famine came upon his people, a famine of knowledge and understanding. And all types of other things involving pain and suffering happened because of the rejection of their Savior. Now, verse 12, But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid there in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the more the father of Shechem. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is speaking now at the end of the tomb, the only possession that Abraham had from Genesis 23. But what we find is, at first, his brothers did not recognize him. There's this great famine in the land. Uh, Jacob has heard that the only place where grain is actually at is in Egypt. Why? Because that's where Joseph was, who had been given a vision by God of this famine getting ready to happen, and so he built up great storehouses in Egypt to take care of their own people. But what was God actually doing? But preparing to take care of Joseph's family. And so they make their way to Egypt because grain is there, and yet they did not recognize their brother. He, he looked different than what they'd expected. They thought he was dead, long gone, and so they did not recognize him when he first appeared to them. John chapter 1, verse 11 says that Christ came to his own, and yet they did not receive him. They did not recognize him. Now, the second time they go back, Joseph, in Genesis chapter 45, it's this beautiful emotional moment. As they come back to him a second time, he can't control his emotions anymore, and he cries out to them, I am Joseph. Don't you see? I'm, I'm the one you were looking for. I'm here to actually bring salvation to our family. And what we find is the second Christ appears before his people, his family, they're going to recognize him. They're going to realize who he is at his second coming. And what Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 says is that they're going to ask him, where did you get these wounds in your hands? Well, wait a minute, what, what happened to you? And he's going to say, in the house of my friends is where I received these. And they're going to realize exactly what they did during his first coming, that his, his own family were the ones that actually delivered the wounds to him, speaking of Christ. So this is the relationship that's now going on. It's now unfolding. Uh, Joseph has actually been called to be salvation to his people. Now verse 17. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. And so we see now multiplication happening. The, The Jewish people went from just 75, a small family, to now 2 million people. 400 years later. See, how on earth were they ever going to overtake an entire land of Canaan, which is 75 people? God knew precisely what he was doing when he placed them there. Now, verse 18, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. 
And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they may not live. But Pharaoh came 400 years later that didn't know Joseph is what we're told. He didn't have an appreciation for Joseph and his family. And what he did know is that these Hebrew people were multiplying quickly. They were becoming very powerful as a force. And so the, the king, the Pharaoh said, look, I'm going to deal treacherously. I'm going to stop this population growth because any of our enemies that come into us that want to then convince them to battle against us, they're going to overthrow us. We don't stand a chance against an army of two million people. And so what he instructed to be done was for all of the children, the, the baby boys, to be cast into the Nile River that were born to these Hebrew women. Absolutely an awful thing to ask them to do. Then verse 20, at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But... When he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And so we see now the stories transitioning from Abraham, the father of the faith, then to Joseph, a picture of salvation, and now on to Moses, who's a picture of the law. And so what we see is, as they are growing and transitioning, as the nation of Israel is actually growing up in the world, in Egypt, you begin to realize that God is not confined. He is not confined by location. He is not confined to a place or even to rules and regulations. And so much of what they wanted to do in the law of Moses was confine God, put him into a box. But the law was given for our benefit, not for his benefit. It was given as a protection. And so verse 21 uh, said that when he was set out, when uh, Moses was actually put out there in the Nile River that Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And what we find is Moses' mother, looking at her son, not able to throw him into the Nile River, she builds a little ark to put him in, a little boat, and, and, and floats him off there into the Nile River. But you know, she was a smart woman for a couple reasons. One, she would have known Pharaoh's daughter was at the other end of the river. She probably had knowledge of that. And, and secondly is... Why did she put him in an ark, of all things? Because she knew her scripture. She knew the stories of the faithfulness of her God. And what she knew was the story of Noah, delivering their people, carrying people through judgment into a place of righteousness. And so what we see is she looks at God's word for practical advice. I want to encourage you when you've got an issue, something happening in your household, turn to the word of God. I know that sounds very preachy, but I, I will tell you over and what you will find is that this book is living and breathing. And every single page, there is Jesus on it. Christ is in every part of this book, and he is looking to instruct us not to confuse us or trip us up. And so for this mother of Moses, she turns to the word of God and actually finds a very practical answer to the issue that's concerning the death of her son that's impending. And he is brought up in the house of Pharaoh. In verse 22, Moses learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians 
and was mighty in words and deeds. And now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And so, so now you begin to see the comparisons between Christ and Moses. Now Moses is at the right hand of the king. He is brought up in Pharaoh's house. I mean, you talk about only God being able to work this all out. He takes a Hebrew boy that should have died, and now he becomes in, in the upper echelon of the entire Egyptian community. And so he, but he has this heart for his people. His heart is broken for his people, and so he leaves his throne. He leaves his kingdom to go down to be with them. And so he, he goes down as Christ, leaving the right hand of the Father to come down to us out of love, not just out of morbid curiosity, but knowing his people were being afflicted. He came down for us. Now, verse 3 says, Now when he was 40 years old, excuse me, I already read that part. I'm on verse 24. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them who were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, men you are brethren. Why do you do wrong to one another? And so Moses sees the affliction happening there to Israel. These Egyptians are punishing, literally beating one of his brothers. And so Moses took matters into his own hands. Apparently he was a pretty tough dude, and he killed the Egyptian. And, and he assumed nobody saw this little incident that took place. But the next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting amongst each other. And, and he, what he's seeking for them is reconciliation. He doesn't want to see them infighting among each other. And yet as he's seeking for them to reconcile, to work through this, Instead of reconciling, they reject. They reject a potential deliverer, again rejecting a Savior. That's precisely what they're doing time and time again. And instead saying in verse 27, But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? That appointed you ruler and judge. And when you think about Christ there on trial as he appeared before Pilate, and what Pilate said of Jesus is, here is your king to the Jewish people. Here's the one to rule, rule over you, the king of the Jews. But what they replied in John 19.15 is, he is not our king. We have no king except for Caesar. They actually rejected the king of kings, saying, he's not here to rule over us. Instead, we'll take a pagan ruler. And what they ultimately were looking for was to rule over themselves. They wanted to be in charge. Now, verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? They throw it right back in Moses' face. And then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And so when you think about the parallels of Christ in this story, what you find is Moses being rejected by his own people. He instead turns to the Gentiles. He goes to Midian, a Gentile people, and he has a family there. And we see that precisely laying out in the body of Christ. Rejected by his own people, what's he do? He takes the message to the Gentiles. And he begins to have an entire family of Gentile people that will listen and will believe because his own would not. Now then, verse 30, And when forty years had passed, and the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. 
As he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am, the, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your, take off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So as this next 40 years pass in the life of Moses, this is what God says to him in the bush uh, in summary. He says, I have seen, I have heard, I am coming. I don't know how many of you feel like you've been oppressed and beat down and pushed on and persecuted. And it does seem like we have to ask, Lord, where are you? Like, where are you in this situation? Do you see what's going on in the spot that I'm in? Do you even care at all about this place that I'm at? And yet what you find is God replies, I have seen, I have heard, I am coming. And so many to understand how many different levels God is actually working on simultaneously. You realize as he's working and building up a nation that is Israel, at the same time, what he's doing is he is dealing with the Amorites that are in the land of Canaan. Here's these Amorites and the Jebusites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and probably the Termites. They're all there. All the ites are there in the land of Canaan. And what God told Abraham is, I'm going to give them 400 years until their sin is complete. I'm going to give them 400 years to get this thing right before I boot them out. And so often we read these Old Testament stories and we think, man, God just doesn't care about these people. He's saying just go and wipe them all out to King Saul or to King David. But you have to understand the story of the Bible is he gave them 400 years to get it right. Oh, the mercy and the grace of God. And he's dealing with that at the same time as he's raising up Israel. So understand as he's working things in your life, he's oftentimes dealing with the Amorite at the same time. He's preparing the land. The next place you're to go, he's getting it ready for you as he also at the same time deals with us. But all the while, it's important to understand. He's saying, I have seen, I have heard, and I am coming. You can count on that. Now, verse 35. Moses, whom they rejected, whom you made a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so what he's saying to these people is, remember, you're so excited about Moses. We love Moses. Moses is the man. And even to this day, if you go to Israel, I mean, it is Abraham and Moses. They love uh, Moses and the law. In fact, I almost bought when I was in Israel one of my favorite shirts. It says, uh, Guns and Moses. That's what they've got there. It's got the little symbol. That's what they're all about, little guns and Moses. I thought it was pretty cool, but I knew Angela wouldn't be as excited. But uh, the point is they love Moses, but what Stephen's making clear is you rejected him. Remember Moses that you're so excited about. You actually flat out rejected him. And as a result, Moses having to be sent back a second time, 40 years past, you understand they had more oppression. They had more... Uh, opposition, more persecution was happening because they did not receive their Savior the first time. God's good and He's so gracious, but what happens is when we reject Him, 
there is often an entire wilderness season that we have to endure that he does not desire us to endure, but we will not accept him the first time. And so this is the case for Moses. Verse 36, and he brought them out. He had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, and him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. This is that same Moses that he's speaking about. And you think about the wonderful things that the children of Israel were able to see. I mean, they, they received bread from heaven. I mean, God literally gave them bread every single morning, just delivered out there. God called it bread from heaven. They said, what is it? And so God said, well, you can call it manna. I mean, manna is literally translated, what is it? So they just walked out there, received bread from heaven, which was like a heavenly graham cracker. The, the next thing that he did is he delivered them from Egypt, out of the world by the blood of the lamb on Passover. Amazingly, miraculously, he brought them out of the world and then passed them through the Red Sea, literally bringing them through the waters. And so we wonder, how can they look at these miracles and reject? And then we turn it to our own lives, right? Jesus, the, the bread of life, who invites us into continual communion with him to feed us daily. He desires for you daily to be fed, you understand? And, and, and through the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb of God, we're actually saved. We're actually brought out of the world into an eternal life through his blood. And then as a sign, as a symbol to show our connection to him, we have the opportunity to be baptized, to be brought through the water. And so you begin to see these parallels between the church and between Israel. It's not to say that we are Israel, but you see what God is up to in this story. Now to finish verse 38, speaking of Moses, he says, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. He received the word of God there on Mount Sinai, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. In their hearts they turned back to Egypt, and saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so here's Moses. He, he goes up onto Mount Sinai to get the very oracles of Scripture, to get the word of God given to him. And all they had to do was simply wait at the base of the mountain. Now, there were thunderings and lightnings and things going on, but they just were simply told to wait. Just hang out here for a little while. And yet, what did they begin to do but complain and moan because God was taking too long? And then, Moses, who knows what happened to him? I mean, God probably smoked him up there on the mountain. How do we know? But where in the world is the Lord in this spot? And I think about how many times uh, as I criticize them for not being willing to be patient for 40 days, I don't even want to wait on God for 40 minutes. I mean, Lord, I'm, I'm calling for you to answer this thing, and I need an answer right now. And so they begin to doubt, like we can do so often. Where are you at in this place, Lord? In verse 41, And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And so while they're waiting there at the base of the mountain, they approach Aaron the brother of Moses, and they said, look, you've got to make us something to worship. 
We need to get some worship going on right now. And so Aaron said, give me your gold. They take all of the gold. And according to Aaron's story, this, is, this is, sounds like a story I get oftentimes from my children. I just threw the gold into the fire and a calf popped out. Right, that makes a lot of sense, Aaron. A calf just popped out. Just so happened to be just like one of the golden calves that they would worship in Egypt. And so they began to turn to idolatry. Now, it's hard for us to understand because uh, we don't have little golden statues all around our house. But understand what's at the root of idolatry. It's uh, their desires, their wants, their needs, their comforts. That's ultimately when we, we in, integral a desire to worship. Solomon says we have a, a hole in our heart, this eternal hole that only God can fill. But what we try to do is cram everything else into it. Uh, and, and before long, we become our own God. We, we become God ourselves. We're going to fill ourselves in in this spot, and we're going to take care of all these things because where did the Lord go? So I'm going to finish these needs off that I want, that I need my comfort. Now, verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Repham, the images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And so they turned to these different gods, and they, this was a nation that was prone to fall into idolatry, and the one that he specifically mentions is the god of Molech. Now, most of you don't have any clue who Molech is, but let me just uh, tell you, he's a, he's a Canaanite god, so in the land of Canaan that they were to possess, and what they did with Molech, he was this large uh, metallic object, and his arms were opened uh, out like this, and they would heat Molech up to a red-hot temperature, take their firstborn child and actually lay it upon these hot arms of Molech and watch their child die. And they called that worship, right? It's disgusting. It's stomach-turning. It, 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 it's offensive to us in every way. And God says, look, of these things, I couldn't even fathom them. He, God couldn't even imagine these things that were so awful. And yet, the reason they would do this to Molech is because they believed he would bring them wealth and success and prosperity. And so while we are repulsed by the God of Molech, I wonder how many kids in our own country, in our own state, in our own county, unfortunately, if I'm being truly honest, in my own house, have been offered up on the arms of Molech because of success and prosperity and a desire to get ahead. Or how many uh, women have been convinced that this child will stop you from having success and prosperity and getting ahead, and so you just need to sacrifice the child. And so we begin to see how truly twisted these idols actually are in our own lives. It's disturbing at the very least. In verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. And as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. And so he's going to now transition from Moses and from the law 
The, the very law that they rejected and refused to accept, and he's going to say, look, this law, all, all this law that you're so happy about, you would not even fulfill a single bit of it yourselves. You refused to do it. Now we're going to talk about the temple. But first he goes to the tabernacle. And, and what we read here is that what God actually instructed Moses to do was construct a tabernacle. And I love the tabernacle because it's essentially like a mobile home. It's like a double-wide trailer. They could take it anywhere, and this, that's where they live, right? So God said, I want you to build me a double-wide trailer so I can go everywhere with you. I want to go camping with you, literally to dwell in a tent of meeting so I can be in your midst. That's what God wanted to do, be ever-present with them, be right in the center of the camp. And so God, the reality is he did not ever ask to be confined at all to any kind of temple. He was perfectly happy with the tabernacle. Now then, verse 46. Who found favor before God, speaking of David, and asked a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is this place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And so what, what uh, Stephen does is he says, look, you're excited about the temple, but what temple could ever contain God? It's not possible. David had it in his heart, by the way, to build this temple for God. David was a man after God's own heart. But as David tells God, look, I want to build you this beautiful temple, what God says is, uh, you're a man of war. You can't build me a temple. You're a man of blood. My house is to be a house of peace. And so who builds the temple in that next verse? But Solomon, whose name literally means peace. And so Solomon was the one that built the temple. But what's important to understand about this story is David was so excited about the potential to build God a house. Second Samuel chapter 7, I'll go there quickly. This is what God was actually speaking to him. He says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your father, I will set up your seed after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. David, you're excited about building me a house. What God says is I'm going to build you a house. Only this house is going to go on for all of eternity. And he was speaking specifically of the Messiah. And what does Jesus say about his own body? But tear down this temple and in three days I'm going to resurrect it. The temple was always to point to Christ. It was all about him from the very beginning. And so God's already telling them, this is the story. You're excited about a building. I want to talk to you about a person. You're excited about a place or a religion. I want to talk to you about a relationship. In verse 51, Stephen continues and says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so you have to love Stephen. I think maybe he was taking some uh, lessons from Peter about how to get to these guys. He says, you are a bunch of stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ear. You don't listen to what we're saying. You're, you're hearing, you're not really listening. And so Stephen points to the fact that it was never, ever supposed to be about a temple. It was always supposed to be about their hearts. And in their hearts, they'd resisted 
the Holy Spirit. Where does God truly hide? In you. In me. The Holy Spirit wants to come into your tabernacle, these temporary structures that we're all walking around in. He's already got a temple built for you. If you're a believer in Jesus, praise the Lord, he's got something perfect that's made by his hands, not by ours. But, but for now, we're residing in these tabernacles. And what he's saying is, I want to reside in you and with you. That's what you're ultimately resisting and rejecting. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become murderers, betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And so what he's accusing them of in verse 52, it's very true, is they've misremembered their own history. They want to go back and rewrite history, but the reality is uh, every one of the prophets that they want to uh, promote and, and speak about, they killed him. <laughs> I mean, they, they took Isaiah, where he just quoted, they, they actually sawed Isaiah in half. That's what King Manasseh did. That wasn't some evil Gentile. They, they, they cut this prophet in two. They took Jeremiah and, and led him out to be stoned to death. They killed Zechariah in the temple itself. Every prophet they persecuted, and then they killed. And so what Stephen's saying is, you want to promote the law, and speak about the law and your religion, but you can't even keep that. You're breakers and violators of your own rules. You betrayed the very law that you want to proclaim. Now then, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. So like little children, they literally tried to go in and bite at him. They were so angry, so incensed. In verse 55, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As these men went absolutely crazy, they were going bananas, Stephen was as calm as he could be because his eyes were fixed on heaven. And what he was able to speak about, look there with me in verse 55, he saw the glory of God. God. I want to go back to verse 2, I believe it was. Stephen began to speak to them about the God of glory. And by the time we get to the end of our story, he is able to see the glory of God. I want to encourage you that if you desire to see the glory of God, speak about the God of glory. If you desire to see the healing of God, speak about the God of healing. Whatever it is in your life that you desire to see, you need to know that you can speak freely about him in your life. What he's up to in your life. Share your testimony. Share what God has done. Oftentimes, we'll want to cry out, Lord, I need a healer. Well, how often have you shared about the times he's actually healed you? <laughs> how often have we cried out for him to show, him, show us his glory, but you don't speak about his glory to anyone? Or we cry out, God, be merciful, be gracious, and yet we do not speak of the grace and the mercy of God. So how then can we turn around and see the grace and the mercy of God? Now, verse 56. And said, look, this is Stephen proclaiming, I see the heavens opened 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so we see them reacting in a polar opposite to what Stephen was doing. And they, they took him and they cast him out of the city. We can paint a picture in our mind that's maybe a little too PG about this. So I just want to share with you that when they cast him out of the city, uh, Jerusalem was a walled city. They threw him off the top of the wall down to the ground below where they were going to stone him. And they took off their, uh, their clothes, what they're referring to there is their outer cloak because look if you're going to throw a, a baseball or a stone you don't want to have a jacket on it might get in the way if you're going to get a good old chuck at it and so they took off their outer garment their fancy clothes and they laid them down the laying down of your clothes is a sign of agreement to this act and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul who we're going to read a lot about over the next several months this is uh, Saul of Tarsus who's agreeing to the murder of Stephen, who would later become the Apostle Paul. <laughs> what they had desired for evil, God was going to use for good. What they had desired to destroy and to tear down in the life of Stephen and the early church, what they wanted to persecute and run off and stamp out, this was going to literally ignite a fire that is going to spread the gospel message throughout all the known world. As Joseph was approached by his brothers after the death of Jacob, they came up to him because they were concerned he was going to murder all of them because of the way they had treated their brother. And what Joseph replied was, what you don't understand is what you meant for evil, God intended for good. God intended this thing to be used for good. And what Saul actually intends in this spot to be done for the purposes of evil. What he has no idea is that God is going to get into his very heart and change his life, and he's going to write half of our New Testament. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? When you think about the life of the Apostle Paul, and every time Paul is going to deliver a message, 